All right, so uh, if you have your Bibles, go and grab those. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 33 um, and 34 today. So if you're looking at that and you think that seems like a lot, it's because it is a lot. Um, So we have to move relatively quickly, and quite frankly, you could probably do a sermon on all six of the movements of the narrative in these two chapters, Um, but since we've got all six in one, we're only going to be able to really dip our toe in um, in what all the the Lord has for us um, in this text. So here's the challenge. Whatever truth the Lord stirs in your heart this morning, I hope you can use this as fuel for your meditation um, and your own personal time with him uh, throughout throughout the week because it is incredible and perhaps a appropriate title since this sermon is going to feel like too much uh, this morning. Um, the title of today is Too Much Glory. Too Much Glory. And the point of that is not to say that God is giving too much as if he's excessive. The point here is that when we see some of the truths revealed about God one, it is honestly too much for us to handle. It's too much and you're going to see at the end of 34 that it was actually too much for Moses to handle as well. But before we see the beauty of, of 33 and 34, I want to catch us up and just remind you of context, particularly um, for the book of Exodus. If you remember in your Bibles earlier, um, in around Genesis 12, uh, God blesses a man named Abraham to be a, to, saying that through his family, they will become a nation that their purpose will be to glorify God, one, but ultimately to bless the nations. The point was for God's people through this man to be a blessing, to bless them to be a blessing, and even this foreshadowed Christ. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who blesses the nations. And as God progressively reveals himself through, um, as he fulfills his promises uh, through his people, we see that Israel, eventually, um, they prosper. And they find themselves in a place called Egypt. And then they are captured and put into slavery. And it seems as if, maybe, that God's promise won't be fulfilled. And hopefully things are starting to connect for you. This is where Moses comes in. Um, God hears their cries and makes good on his promise, even though they had slavery and sin and suffering. And ultimately, God rescues his people from Egypt. Through a man named Moses, which is the point of our series, and and if you remember... in the narrative and as God's people are rescued they're also given the law he gives his law his commands to rescued people and I want you to see something that I think sometimes we get mixed up in our minds whenever Israel was crying out to God when they were in slavery to Egypt he didn't respond and say okay yes I am your God here are some commands if you obey them perfectly and perfectly for your entire life then I will save you from Egypt and you can go on your way What happens? The order is so important. He rescues them from Egypt and then gives them the law to show them how to live as rescued people. And that is a foreshadowing of what salvation is for us. Whenever you're a saved person, God didn't look down at you and say, obey these laws perfectly your whole life and then I'll save you. He imputes righteousness from Jesus who obeyed that for us, rescues us, and then changes us so that we can live out our lives as rescued people. So he gives them the law, shows them how to worship, how to walk in his presence, 
and how to deal with sin all in the context of living as a blessed people meant to be a blessing to the nations. So, how did God's people do? (laughs) They were rescued, they were given the law, they were commissioned. If you remember from last week, it was not good. I mean, they literally had the law from God. If you look at Exodus 31, 18, the highlighted portion here, he gives them the law. It is literally written with the finger of God. This is too good to be true. They have this from a God that has rescued them, a God who loves them, a God who will fulfill his promises. And what do they do? They make an idol, a golden calf, instead of worshiping and obeying this God who would rescue them, instead they make an idol. And God promises judgment, and Moses is praying for mercy. That's where we were last week. And the tension of this mercy from a God who is merciful and judgment on a people who are sinful, this blessing for, for people who belong to God and cursing for people who rebel against God, this tension should actually drive you to worship This tension is intentional in the text to stretch our muscles of faith so that we will learn to worship God even when it's confusing. And if you're honest with yourself, this is our story too. We are blessed in Christ to be a blessing. We are a rescued people from our slavery to sin. He's given us commands to live out our salvation, not to earn it, yet we continue to fail him and fail him and fail him. God is holy We are not, and it's this tension that ultimately drives us straight to the essence of our faith, the cross. How else could a God who is perfectly holy continue to be in relationship with us, If um, continue to be holy if he's not punishing sin, but also continue to be in a relationship with us because he loves us? It is only in the cross. So keeping that in mind, especially as we peer into the continuing story here in Exodus, Because what we're going to see is a holy God in a covenant with people who are unholy. And it's only going to make sense if you keep the cross on the front of your mind. The tension is meant to drive you to the essence of our faith. And it's going to be too much. Our faith, getting to live in Christ, really is too good to be true. But it is. And in this story, we're actually going to see the physical appearance of Moses changed because of an encounter with our God. The God that we sing about, the God that we are going to hear from through his word, his physical appearance is actually altered because he is overwhelmed by too much glory. And in the flow of this narrative, we're going to learn about prayer. We're going to learn about worship to God. We're going to learn about longing for the presence of God. And once we see how the New Testament authors use these two chapters, we're going to learn key elements of the doctrine of our salvation and even a key piece of the doctrine of the ministry that we're called to as the people of God. This is an incredible text, so I hope you are leaning in this morning. If you're taking notes, here are the six movements of the narrative. The first part, we're going to look at the threat of life without God's presence. You see the chapter and verse there if you want to write these down. Second movement here is the mercy of life with God's attention. Thirdly, the prayer of a desperate man. Four, the grace of knowing God's name. Five, the joy of knowing God's will. And lastly, the face of a man who encountered God. So, let's look right at verse 1 in chapter 33. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. 
to the land of which I swore, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. That's that promise. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. And lean in here. Look. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If, a, if for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now, take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of the ornaments. Good idea. So if you remember last week, Moses is interceding for Israel and God gives them mercy. And God literally was ready to send them on their way to the promised land. You see that? Like, you're going to go to the land of milk and honey, but I'm not going to go with you. I'm not going to go with you because I'm so holy, you're so sinful. If I went with you, you literally wouldn't survive. He was going to give them the land of milk and honey. He was even going to destroy all of the ites so they could have peace in the land. Milk and honey, a prosperous land, all your enemies destroyed, but not his presence. This was a consequence of their sin. In their rebellion, they wanted the presence of a golden calf, not the presence of the God who saved them. He was giving them what they wanted in judgment for their sin. But if you'll see here, the Israelites are at least starting to learn their lesson. Starting to learn their lesson. Look at this, uh, this next ver- uh, verse 4. Yeah, it says this. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one, or no one put on ornaments. So this is their reaction. I want to frame this for you here. The reaction of the Israelites to hear from God. I'm going to give you a great land. I'm going to prosper you. I'm going to get rid of all of your enemies. So perfect earthly success, but I'm not going to be with you. The way that they reacted was to mourn. And we see one great reality and two reactions here from the people of God. The reality is this, that they saw getting everything the world could possibly offer them in prosperity, but without God, they saw that as disastrous. It was a disaster to have everything but not have God. And listen, if we are saved people living in a broken world, this is a reality that makes us countercultural. If you are a person in Christ, you are a person saying that you would rather have God and nothing than everything without God. That's what we've decided to go with. If you're saying Jesus is worth it all, you're saying that I would rather have complete poverty, everything around me a wreck, even the worst suffering, if it means I have God, then to have everything the world has and not have him. At least it should in our lives. Usually, the life of God's old covenant people is an example of what not to do. If we're honest, right, you read through the first five books of the Bible, it is a continuous showing of here's here's what not to do in your life in relationship with God. But I think their reaction here is really, really crucial for us. And I think it can be a mirror for us to see where our priorities actually are. So the question we have to wrestle with, do we long for God's presence 
over the good life? Do we long for God's presence over what the world would call the good life? And I want to make a quick note here because maybe if you're leaning into this, it, it feels a little weird. Like, isn't God present everywhere, right? Like, we know that God is omnipresent, but why are they singing they long for God's presence? How can God stay there and send them and not be there? Um, here's the thing. The, the authors of the Bible knew that God was omnipresent, meaning literally present everywhere. But whenever we're talking about God's presence here, we're talking about their or our experience of him or his choosing to show more of himself to us. You see, we are commanded to seek God. We are commanded to draw near to him. And he is always there. But sometimes, because of our brokenness, because of our sin, there are times when we get disciplined and we can't see the goodness of who he is. Or we're just distracted by the goodness of everything else that we don't experience, love, live, cherish his presence. So what about you? Are you longing for anything in your life to be fixed? Are you wanting some suffering to go away? What if God told you that he would immediately fix everything, but he wouldn't be with you anymore? Where does your heart go? Um, I think of different categories for us. Maybe in the realm of personal fulfillment, would you take a perfectly healthy body, a sound mind, clear direction in life without God, over having God in the struggle? Or would you rather be so competent that everything worked out for you with no need of prayer? Or would you rather have God teaching you every step of the way through your mistakes? Would you rather make $150,000 a year with a maxed out 401k and not experience God's presence? Or would you rather lean on God through tough seasons when you stay generous even when it hurts, not knowing where the next bill payment might come from? What about family idols here in God's presence? What are your biggest dreams for your kids? Would you rather have a kid completely abandoned to the cause of Christ on the mission field and maybe you don't see him or her every holiday? Or would you rather have a kid who is popular, acts moral, never embarrasses you, goes to college, gets a good job, gives you lots of grandkids that all live right beside you in a happy neighborhood, but church isn't a priority in their life. Marriage and singleness, would you rather settle and marry someone who has no interest in things of God or stay single and lean on Jesus? Or in ministry, successful church planning, this one's particularly hard. Would you rather have two services, huge budgets and no problems without God's blessing or would you rather be in God's will throughout all of the setbacks that come with ministry, or maybe your own personal ministry? Would we rather live a safe Christian life where we guard our family from anything in the world or live a life on the edge of the kingdom using our homes as weapons against the kingdom of darkness? I know what we all know we should say. Hopefully you're thinking, I want the first one on all those. But do our actions in, the, in these areas reflect our confessed priorities? How do you think about your personal ambitions? How do you parent your kids? How do we participate in ministry? Would we be devastated with a good life without God? Would we still want heaven if God wasn't there? The Israelites couldn't stomach the thought of this. They learned that they wanted God above everything else, and they mourned, and no one put on ornaments. I love this. They avoided the ornaments that so quickly became the golden calf one chapter ago. 
They weren't throwing them in the fire. And out popped the calf. Took them off. Let's keep going. Verse 7. This is the mercy of life with God's attention. Now Moses used to take the tent, keep this in mind, used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. Seems like a good name. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant, Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. So we get a glimpse here of Moses' tent of meeting ministry, at least before the golden calf incident. Um, You could think of the tent as sort of a portable Mount Sinai, um, a precursor to the tabernacle, which is actually a precursor to the temple, which is a precursor to Christ, okay? So the point is that all of these things are ultimately pointing us to a reality that we have in Christ. But in this particular context where we're at in the story, this is where Moses or anyone who wanted to meet with God would go. This is a huge deal. And I want you to notice, the people literally would stand up. They would see Moses going to go meet with God, and they would stand up at their tents. And then whenever they would see the pillar of cloud, which was kind of representing God's presence there meeting with Moses, they would literally stand and worship. Like, can you imagine worshiping just because someone else is praying? That's how happy you are about the fact that they get to pray? That's where they were. That's how desperate they were to know and be and love God. I love this. It just says that in verse 11, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face face to face as a man speaks to his friend. But there's a devastating part to this narrative. And it's the past tense tone of this section. The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. The Lord used to meet God in the tent. Their sin was great, and this was a consequence. Which brings up an important point for us, those of us this side of the cross and resurrection who want to celebrate and know and love our relationship with God. It was always mercy to be able to meet with God and have his attention. But in Christ, this is always true for us now. This is the mercy of life with God's attention. This points us forward to an incredible reality that is always true for us as we pray. Jesus is our intercessor now, and we get to meet with him in our own personal tent meeting anytime you open his word and get on your knees to pray. We get to have his presence whenever we want, but we are so unlike the Israelites here too, aren't we? Do we stand at attention longing for his presence, or is our prayer life an afterthought? Please don't just hear that and think, yeah, you know what, I should pray more. I want you to feel the weight of this. They would stand at attention and cheer just for watching someone pray. And it wasn't because Moses was a great prayer, though I'm sure he was good. The point was they were overwhelmed that a sinful person leading a sinful people would actually have God's attention. Man, it would be easier to get up a little earlier to spend time with the Lord if we would have that longing in our souls. 
In Christ, we have God's attention and we do not deserve it. It is all mercy. We need to be like the Israelites in this snapshot of their life. But I want you to notice one really cool um, detail here that is also convicting and hopefully inspiring for you. Um, At the very end of this section, it says, when Moses turned um, again into the camps after he was done, his assistant, Joshua, so familiar with your Bibles, that is Joshua who would, we get to watch him be the great warrior for Israel as they take the promised land. And we see what his priority was as a young man. Notice what Joshua would not do. He would not depart from the tent. What did Joshua clearly love? The glory of God. He wasn't even in the tent. He just wanted to be near it. Like, this is, this is how you make a warrior for Christ. It wasn't Joshua's great strength or his battle strategies. I mean, you'll see if we ever preach through Joshua here, you're going to see there were some interesting battle strategies that God gave them to bring victory to the God's people. But to make a warrior for Christ, it was someone who loved and longed to be near God. So men and women who want to be on the front lines of this church, either on our campus or in our city or at our workplaces, on the front lines advancing the kingdom, know that there are battles to fight out there, but you will not be effective. You will not be a person who can go mobilize and strategize and do all this incredible ministry if you are not a person who loves and longs to be near God. We have his attention. We should long to know him. And especially you, you all that want to be in full-time ministry one day, or lead in some capacity in ministry, this is where a person of God to be used is made. It's not all the stuff that everybody sees. It's what are you like on your knees in front of God's presence. The Israelites' sin took this privilege away from them temporarily, but in Christ we have this gift in full forever. So let's stay in the story and see how Moses prays in light of the obvious absence of God in their midst now. This is the prayer of a desperate man. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. So Moses brings up the command of God to go. Moses brings up the promise of God to be with them, this worshiping God and, and asking and begging and imploring him, reminding him that God knows them by name and God has shown favor on them. We keep going. It says, now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. Moses is desperate to know God's ways. Look at this relief coming next. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. God says that he will be with them. God's presence is rest for his people. And I love this. We're going to get a snapshot of a heart of true faith. Look how Moses responds to this. He doesn't say, well, yeah, we deserve it because look at all we've done for you, God. Whenever God gives him the mercy of saying, I will go with you now, here's what he says. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. (laughs) Just don't do it, God. Like, if you're not going to come, we would rather stay here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? We see even more of a priority of Moses' heart here. 
He wants the nations to know who God is. That is his main concern. He wants people to know that God is real and true and beautiful and deserving of all worship, saying, God, how are they going to know that we are distinct to show off your glory? Remember, God, we were set apart to be a blessing to these nations. How are we going to be set apart if your blessing is not obvious on us? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. God literally moves in accordance with Moses' prayer. And I think Moses is just pumped because his next prayer request is unbelievably huge. This next verse, after this promise, he says, please show me your glory. This is the essence of what all of our prayer should be. We want to see God's glory and know and experience him in all of his fullness. Take an account of your prayer life. Is it centered around just wanting to see more of who God is and praising him? Or is it usually, God, here's a list of stuff, God. And maybe that, that could be what's draining your spiritual energy to be a person of prayer. It's because you're not begging God for more of him in your prayers. Just showing him a list and saying, all right, God, here's my plan. Bless it. The essence of what... Our prayers should be. But I love this. This is honestly confusing to me, and I think the point is, unless there's, you know, I'm sure there's smarter people who, have, who go here, and it's incredible, but I just think this is overwhelming if you take it for what it says. It's what God responds to the prayer of, God, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, confusing part, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Like, I don't even know how you just let your goodness pass before someone. Like, the goodness of you is somehow this abstract glory that God is going to do because he knows, listen, you want to see my glory, but Moses, you literally can't handle it. If you see my face, Moses, you will not survive. You won't make it. It's too much. But right in this piece where God says, um, I, will, I will proclaim before you my name, my goodness will pass before you, we actually see a base text that will forever show us who our God is. And here's the theological takeaway. And if you can grab this and love this and cherish this, it will set you free. Here it is. God does what he wants. Whenever God says, my name, the Lord, and he says, I'm going to be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy, what I'm thinking is that Moses is hoping, I hope I'm one of them. And that's exactly the response that a heart that is soft toward God should have. Here's the beauty of the God we serve. He does whatever he wants. And that's only scary if you don't trust who he is. Because if you trust the nature of who God is, whenever he does what he wants, that's what you will want too. And that means if you're saved, it's because he wanted you. And that means if you've gone through a dark time, it's because he wanted that for you, not so that you will hurt just for the sake of hurting. The point is that he knew it would ultimately be what is best for you. Please understand 
that anything that we have that is not God's wrath forever is undeserved grace and mercy. The fact that you are saved is completely up to God. And you have two choices with a truth like that. You can lean into that reality and draw close to a God who promises to draw near to you if you draw near to him. Or you can lean away because you don't understand it. But God wants us to know and worship him. And our God does what he wants. And this is the power of our life and ministry. This text would later become a base text for Paul. I don't know, we're going through Romans and community groups. I don't know how many of you have gotten to Romans 9 yet. But a lot of the power and truth claims behind Romans 9 come right from here. Just the fact that God says, I'm going to be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy gives Paul deep insight into the doctrine of salvation. We keep going though. It says, the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, for you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. God working to show off himself while still protecting Moses. God's glory is both devastating and exactly what we need. I love that. And I'll be honest, I do not quite understand. (laughs) He's like, all right, in this hole, while my back and goodness pass by, my hand will cover you, but you cannot see my face Moses, because it's too much for you to handle. The next part in the, t- in the narrative, we're going to 34 now. This is the grace of knowing God's name. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets of this, which you broke, just reminding you. Um, you don't deserve this, Moses, just letting you know. This is the thing that I'm going to give you just like the last time, and what happened last time you broke them. Okay. Both metaphorically and literally, if you remember, they broke the laws on the tablets, and also Moses literally threw the tablets and broke them. So, just be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze up opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning, and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone." keeps getting better. There's only more mercy. God is actually going to let these people have the written law again. Like, please don't just let that be some far-off intellectual thing that you know. He's actually going to tell them and have them write it down again. The law that they broke. It's like he's just saying, don't forget, Moses. You do not deserve this. You broke this last time, but I love you. And Moses, learning to be even more and more of a leader, grabs his tablets, heads to the mountain early in the morning, and we see this scene. Look at this. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Like, lean in. This is character that we would not know about God if he didn't reveal it to us. He's merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children 
and the children's children to the third and the fourth um, fourth generation. The Lord proclaims his name. What he will stake his reputation on. He's saying, this is who I am, this is what I'm like, and you can take that for fact. These are crucial to know in your mind so that your heart will be set on fire to worship him. Like, theology is important. You have to know who God is so that your hearts can worship him rightly. Aren't you thankful that this is how God revealed himself? Like, he could still be God and just said, the Lord, the Lord, here's my name. I will by no means clear the guilty. Write that down, Moses. Don't break him this time. And send him off the mountain. And he would still be God. He would still deserve our allegiance because he made us. But instead, what he shows is a God who is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. I love this. Literally keeping it for thousands of generations. But you see an interesting part here that should cause some more tension as you read this. He is merciful, gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, but who will by no means clear the guilty. The tension of these attributes, a God who will forgive but who also will not clear the guilty, is found in the person and work of Jesus. How can a God this merciful and gracious also not clear the guilty? I thought that he forgave sin. He does this by declaring his own son guilty for our sins. He didn't clear the guilty. He punished the guilty in Christ. And we get a life of Christ. We get his righteousness. It's the great exchange that drives us to worship. This should not get boring. This is a God who will by no means clear the guilty, but somehow you're still breathing. That is undeserved mercy, and it only makes sense when you know and see God in the face of Christ. You see, we couldn't see God's face and live, so he put on a human face and came to us. This is undeserved mercy. I love the next part. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Seems appropriate. So what do you pray in light of a God who reveals himself like that? Here's how Moses prays. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. So a God who reveals himself like this to us in Christ, here's how we need to pray as a people. God, come with us. <laughs> we are sinful Forgive us and take us and be with us forever. That's the appropriate response. Let's keep going. The joy of knowing God's will. Verse 10. So we're going to see this, that now God answers with renewing his covenant with a glorious mix of commands and promises that's going to show off his will to Israel again. So we as new covenant people, right, so if we're in Christ, we're not under this law, but we can see principles and commands that apply to us as Christ fulfills them. So the point, and we cannot break down all of these, this is not simply not time, but I want you to be overwhelmed that God is actually showing them his will again. They didn't deserve that. He stooped low to show this sinful people his will again. He could have left them on their own, but instead he shows all of us how to please him. 
we don't even deserve to know how we fail God, okay? Like, you don't even deserve to know how much of a sinner you are. That's how much of a sinner that we are. But in this, we just continually see more and more mercy. So let's, let's look at this. And he said, behold, I'm making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels, such as not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. He will show off his glory with an eye for the whole world, every nation. Let's look at these next commands. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will, to the promise, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. But with that promise comes a warning and a command. Look, take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited. You eat of the sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. The amount of evil that humans can do if they attach themselves to idols is seemingly unending here. And God's know this. God knows this. And part of the joy of knowing God's will in his commands is that his commands keep our hands off of things that are killing us. But I want you to see, this, these commands he gives us is based on his jealousy. He's jealous for our affection, so he gives us his commands to obey so that we will not sin. Let's keep going. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib for the month of Abib you came out from Egypt. All that opened the womb are mine, all your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest time you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at year's end. Three times in the year shall your males appear before the Lord God, God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So the point here, God is instituting a way for Israel to never forget what he has done. He's demanding all of the firsts of their lives. Even their calendar would revolve around his glory. And I have zero spiritual insight into the command about goats and mother's milk. And apparently Google doesn't either. So, um, but I do love this because you, you really can't, like, you'll read commentaries and they're just like, eh, just don't do it. You know, that's what they said. So, like, I know that we're not under this law anymore, but I still love this. That there's, like, a command in here that it's just like a little reminder. God's ways are above your ways, and the old covenant people weren't supposed to do this, so God's smarter than you. Like, even this command can help us worship God. And I have no idea how God, how Jesus fulfills this law, but it's there, and it's for his glory. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I've made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights, neither ate bread nor drank water. And when he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten 
commandments. The Lord has given his will back to his people. Let's see how this glory affects Moses. The face of a man who encountered God. This is incredible. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, um, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with them, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he had commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Now, where we're going to end our morning is actually in 2 Corinthians 3, because Paul picks up on this interesting story where Moses gets the will from God, but it makes his face shine and it scares people, okay? So I want to give you three kind of themes from this text, this one sentence each, to, to set up 2 Corinthians 3 so this can be applied to our lives today. So we got three things, okay? We have Moses, his face is shining because of the glory of God as dis- demonstrated in the law. We have the sinful people who literally needed a veil to cover them, from seeing this glory, they had sinful minds that were prone to reject the truth. And lastly, we had the ministry. This law would only prove, get this, would only prove to be condemnation because they would not worship God. You see, just because they got the law the second time doesn't mean they aren't still law breakers. So with those three things in mind, Moses, sinful people, and ministry, we're going to read this text, and there's three exhortations for us, and then we'll end our morning in worship. So let me read this to you. 2 Corinthians 3. If you want to turn there, um, you can. It's also going to be on the screen. So keep all this text in mind. Paul brings it up. Here's the application for us as people in Christ. This is amazing. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. There it is. This is where we can see Exodus 34. It's awesome. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, In this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. So that is, the glory of the law was good, but Jesus fulfills it. His glory is more. That's what it's talking about there. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, I love that. We're just hoping that this glory is even better. We are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. 
But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So the shining face of Moses should mean three things to us as the people of God in the new covenant. Number one, be bold. The glory that we have in full this side of the cross and resurrection is better than the glory that literally lit a man's face up. (laughs) This is too good. Like, the boldness that we should have. Paul read this and thought, that's glorious. My only response is to go tell everyone I know and be bold. Number two, be thankful. Verse 16, the veil was removed for those of us in Christ. The Spirit did a work for those of you who do not see. So if you came in here this morning and you are not a Christian, I want you to hear this. If you do not see the beauty and joy and glory when you hear this word read, the command for you is simple. Turn to the Lord. You don't have to get your life together. You don't have to get all of your, all of your things in order or your morals to look better than your neighbors. All you have to do is turn to the Lord. And it's in this power that the spirit can literally take the veil off of your eyes the veil that's causing you to see God is not glorious to only see things that are repulsive to you in God if you turn he will remove the veil by faith in Jesus and as the band comes back up here's the final exhortation for us in verse 17 so it's be bold be thankful lastly Be free. True freedom is found in glorifying this God. True freedom is not in doing what you want. It is being able to do what you were made to do. And as you stare at the face of God in Christ, you can be free from your sin as he transforms you from one degree of this glory to the next as we continue to obey him in faith. Let's pray. Um, Father, it should overwhelm us a lot more that we get to encounter you right now through prayer. Lord, we don't need an old covenant intercessor. We have the true and greater intercessor in your son who has removed the veil and has shown us a glory even better than what Moses got to see. So God, I pray for my family in this room that you would teach us to be bold. Lord, you could be any way you want it to be, yet you're good. Help us to be bold with this. The veil is removed. We don't have to hide. You've come in Christ. You've shown us what you're like. Lord, thank you for removing the veil from our eyes. There's nothing we could have done to get that veil off our face, Lord, but you removed it by your spirit. And lastly, Lord, I pray that we are free people here this morning that we would unleash right now in worship, that glorifying you would be our greatest heart's desire, that we would long for your presence right now as a precursor of what our longing will be as we go back to our jobs and our stuff on Monday, that this glory that we see in this text would be the center of all of our lives. We can't do this without your help, God. 
please free us from what holds us back from this. It's in Christ's name I pray.